Yeah, it's real people's money at that point. That's basically being one way locked up and, and basically burnt uh, in a sense until we ship the next updates. You know, to my surprise, I got a MEV boost block for seven ETH a couple of weeks ago. And out of all the blockchains that are out there, I'd wager that Ethereum is really the, you know, the one that has the biggest uh, hobbyist community that runs the network itself because it's possible. In other chains, that isn't even a possibility because of how large they are or the compute requirements. Hey guys, welcome back to the second episode of Beneath the Layers by Offchain Labs. I'm your host, Hunter, and in today's conversation, we actually spoke with Preston Van Loon and Raul Jordan. We touched on their personal lives, how they co-founded Prismatic Labs, what they're doing now at Offchain Labs, and just their thoughts on the future of Ethereum. Let's get into it. Preston, Raul, how are we doing, guys? All right. <laughs> I'm doing excellent. It's good to be here with you guys. Awesome. Likewise. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, very excited to have you guys on today. Uh, you know, alongside the obligatory Ethereum stuff that we'll, we'll kind of move over today, uh, we wanna, I want to dig a little bit into your personal lives. Uh, you know, not unlike an intrusive kind of like, you know, legal level, of course. Uh, but just, you know, uh, who knew that some people ha have things to do outside of crypto? right? Uh, it turns out you guys have a lot. So uh, <laughs> going, going a little bit back, uh, how about we start with very simple, uh, where you guys were born and raised, and maybe a little bit about maybe your upbringing that contributed to your passion for software engineering today. Uh, and I guess, uh, Preston, if you want, you can, you can go first. You look, you look ready to answer. I will go first. I am so ready to answer. Okay. Um, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> um most of my life and i guess when i was around like 13 or 14 we moved to the uk we lived in london for all my high school pretty much and um you know around that time was a lot of goofing off on my computer uh instead of doing homework or whatever i was supposed to do i wasn't a very good nice. student you know <laughs> i was uh playing like world of warcraft or i don't know whatever counter-strike and um, I got really interested in like modding games and running my own uh, servers and stuff like that. And kind of just like tinkering and hacking around. Um, and I think that is sort of where I got inspired, you know, to to be on the computer and to learn programming. I learned what a Boolean was. So kind of always been sort of self-taught, but it stemmed, uh, came from video games for the most part. You see, you learned what a Boolean was while you were playing video games? Yeah, because I was programming a World of Warcraft bot that would go around and, like, all night go mine all the ores for me, which is a very tedious task. Uh, and then I would go sell them in the uh, marketplace, and then I would take the gold, and then I would sell it for real money. So I was like, make... <laughs> okay. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's... I got, like... A, you sort of like you can see where I'm going. Like if I could make money with goofing off and programming right. and it it just, you know, long story short, it escalated to this point where on this call now, now I'm goofing off and making money in crypto with all you guys. So it's just, yeah, it's just been a blast. <laughs> what a dream. Yeah. Huh? Just goofing off and making money. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what about you, Roll? Yeah, I wish I discovered, uh, you know, hacking around on, on World of Warcraft with Preston. 
but uh, I also, you know, I think I also came from kind of the MMO world with RuneScape, which is also a big thing. If you ask a lot of nice. people, you know, trading and, and, you know, all that crazy, crazy organic environment that formed. And, you know, I think a lot of us in crypto can relate to those times. Uh, but no, I'm originally from uh, from Honduras. Actually, uh, it's, a, it's you know it's it's a, it's a small, very small country in Central America, and tech hasn't you know it's it's barely made its its entry really there, in the sense that um, you know it's it's a country that has been pretty underdeveloped for many years. Uh, you know, I I for example came from a family that uh, you know wasn't too exposed to these things, uh, but my whole life I really wanted to. I guess uh, make an impact for myself and, and make and do something different. Um, and I realized from the very beginning that what I wanted to do was really study abroad and, and go and see the world. You know, I dreamt about that my whole life. Uh, so I, I was fortunate enough that you know I was able to get into uh, a good school here in the U.S. At, and uh, I was able to you know graduate from high school back in Honduras. Came here, uh, you know, learned about all the crazy things you could do with computers, really. Um, you know, how I got interested in, in, in crypto and, and what inspired me to really go into that was uh, I took my first computer science course in college um, and I realized that it was so cool that from your computer uh, you can produce something that people use. I thought that was pretty mind blowing because, uh, you know, you can just pressing around a bunch of buttons, you build something that real people get value out of. Um, and funny enough, uh, the first project that I built was a uh, food delivery app with a bunch of friends in college. And this was kind of pre-DoorDash day, so it wasn't really a big thing. Um, and we were doing delivery orders from restaurants uh, in, in the little college area. And we actually got in trouble for that because it's a liability to actually oh, wow. uh, run a business out of your dorm, apparently. Um, but, you know, since that experience, it, it just, you know, it shaped all my thinking around, hey, I want to really, you know, get out there, build stuff that people actually use, you know. And now with uh, with Prism and Ethereum and seeing people actually running this huge global network, it's pretty mind blowing. Hundred percent. By the way, I love like this dark difference between kind of like both of your like, I want to say like uh, like upbringings that led to so to software engineering. <laughs> like Preston's a lot more degenerate in nature. Rose <laughs> <laughs> is like a little like, like very inspiring in a way. Um, but I love it. Like, like all, all, road, all roads lead to one thing, I guess, in this case, which is software engineering in this case. Exactly. <laughs> That's dope. And I, I think the, the other comment I had, too, uh, was kind of like, you know, with uh, Preston, you kind of coming from San Antonio, uh, you know, being born in San Antonio and Arul, you being born in Honduras. Uh, you know, it's it's quite amazing how like a lot of society is like, you know, greatest kind of tech people and even innovators come from like outside like the biggest hubs. Which, you know, I, I mean, I would consider like New York City, Silicon Valley, Beijing, like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned this to you guys before, but I figured it has to be something in the water, but I don't know what it is. Like, like you guys have an idea of like what, what caused you to be gigabrains, I guess is what I'm asking, literally. <laughs> no, I think big cities, people are grinding, they're figuring out just how to get ahead in life through all the competition and I was fortunate enough to be able to really just goof around and also explore and just be curious about stuff. Like, why are things the way they are, you know? I think those are some of the qualities that really, you know, make engineering uh, as fun as it is, uh, I think, to, to Preston and I. Uh, you know, growing up, I, my family, my, my aunt had a, a, a water analysis lab. thought it was the coolest thing ever. You can just mess around with... Uh, with we you know with beakers and with uh, and with and with dangerous chemical compounds, uh, and uh, and you know I wish I had computers to do that with. But even then, that was a good start to really uh, 
to really just tinker and mess around. And uh, that's those are some of the qualities that I think I really value. Totally. I think curiosity is at the root of like all the great inventions. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's uh, something Raul and I share pretty deeply is like everything we do in terms of like computer science and and in our careers is about learning something new and trying to leave it in a better place, perhaps, you know, like, I think that's a lot about how we actually ended up uh, working together was, you know, finding Ethereum and being curious. Uh, curiosity drives a lot of innovation. And, and then when there's an opportunity to make a positive impact, I mean, it's just, there's nothing better you could have um, to do. I mean, it's just excellent. Definitely. I mean, I was going to say probably like second to like hitting that one leverage trade, you know, but yeah, I, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> a little, little too, a little too, too uh, degenerate for today's call. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so, so with that being said, I feel like, uh, you know, what I'd love to hear more about too, at least uh, maybe roll from your point of view was uh, what it was like then going from uh, Honduras to uh, going to school, uh, you know, in the U.S., which in, in this case was uh, Harvard. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear more about that process and what it was like uh, even working there. It was pretty, pretty crazy because, uh, you know, like I said, I, I wasn't as nearly as prepared as a lot of the kids that, you know, go to go to schools like that. Uh, you know, I kind of learned a lot of this stuff on my own and kind of came here and uh, just people from all walks of life. Um, it's really a microcosm of, I guess, what, you know, American society in many ways, uh, you know, the good and bad parts. But um I think what was really interesting is, like I said, like how many folks are really risk averse at these big institutions. And, you know, when it comes to even going into crypto, it's something that not many people would even consider even until recently. Right. Um, I think in a lot of places, people want to wait until it's as de-risked as possible for a career path or stability to do something. Right? Uh, startups have gained a lot of traction. But even then, I think folks are, are you know, very careful about, you know, throwing themselves at doing something for like five to ten years. Um, so I guess it was always kind of kind of crazy myself for just like going for it and, and doing you know things that are extremely uncertain but for fun. And I think fun and, and you know curiosity just really drives drives me. So really that's how we met you know met Preston just wanted to work on something interesting and, and actually make a difference. And we had no idea about you know how we would even uh, you know like like survive on this or or, uh, or build a team and you know I think the waves and the tides were on our side and we managed to, to get through I love that too I, I, I can't help but notice like Preston like like laughing half the time you were saying that like <laughs> that's dope um, and what about yourself Preston I, I, I feel like uh, I feel like you know some, something something uh, at least notable about your your history was like working at Google um maybe love to hear a little bit about like how like maybe like, your story behind getting there yeah and then of course working there yeah so uh like i said i wasn't a good student so uh, <laughs> it starts there uh i went i went to a state school in tennessee for a few years and <clears throat> originally wanted to be a pilot that's kind of what i wanted to do uh, i got my private pilot's license um and then I realized that I'd probably have to look a certain way, cut my hair, you know, to be an airline pilot. No one's going to want a, a Wookiee-looking, bum-looking dude flying their plane. So 
um, I say, well, I'm, I'm good at computers, right? I'm gonna stick to that. Um, but eventually I just was like frustrated with school. So I, I quit school and just started doing whatever, um, working wherever I could and doing a lot of sort of e-commerce stuff. But, um, I was building experience and learning a lot of things, you know, learning new frameworks, learning new technologies. Like I, I was doing my job, but then constantly learning. I've, I'm not a good student, but I'm very good at, uh, being self-taught when I'm interested and when no one's telling me to do it. I think that's sort of the problem. If someone tells me to go learn something, I don't want to do it. But if I want to do it, then I'm going to do it. Facts. Yep. And um, so I'm doing that for a few years uh, out of school. Um, you know, not really like not wasting time, just learning things. And I was searching stuff on Google. I think it was like I needed to learn more about Python and Python compiler or interpreter or something like that and at the top of the google search bar comes down this like black bar and it was like you want to play a game and i was like what is what is this you know like am i getting hacked over here um <laughs> so i click it and then the whole screen turns black right the whole thing turns black and then it's just got like a terminal prompt and um ends up being this thing called foobar where google has this uh a series of games you can play that are all programming challenges and they're all rabbit themed. Uh, so it's a bit of like going down the rabbit hole, which we're very familiar with yeah. as crypto, uh, crypto people. Uh, and I seen these challenges, they were pretty fun. You had to, they're all algorithms questions like, uh, you know, how do you organize these rabbits and then sort them in the most efficient way, stuff like that. Um, but eventually you get through and find it's a recruiting tool. Then I had a recruiter emailing me saying, Hey, you know, you did, you did pretty good on this little game. That's actually a tool we're using to, to find people. Um, I said, okay, cool. And they, then they invited me to New York city to, to interview, like the skip, skip the phone interviews and the recruiter screening. We're just going to toss you in, you know, person to person with, uh, with, the uh, interviewers. And I did that and it was brutal. Like there was like five, I think five, uh, almost hour long interviews, like uh, five to six Jeez. hours of interviewing with a lunch in there. It's intense. <laughs> and they're all like, probably, you know, you're standing up the whole time, you're sweating, you're doing the whiteboard. <laughs> uh, it sucks. It's not fun. Um, but I didn't get the job, uh, that, Jeez. that time. And they said, um, you know, you didn't do that bad, actually. You, you just didn't quite get there. Like, I think, you know, knowing what I know now, I was like, maybe like one interviewer that I wasn't able to convince. So they said, you can do it again in a year. We'll call you back in a year. And I said, whatever, I don't even want to work there. You know, thinking that in my mind, I didn't say that, but they called me back a year later. And then I, I knew what it was going to be like. I had a lot of time and training and I, you know, I built up a lot more skills in that year. So they invited me back and I, you know, blew it out of the water pretty much. And then they, they, they hired me, which was awesome. Uh, working in Google, New York city was a really unique opportunity. It was really fun. Learned a lot of, of skills that we uh, uh, have taken on in the prison project. And I learned a lot of things about software engineering. And the cool part about working at Google is everything, almost everything, everything is open within the company. So you can read how everything works, how Google photos works, how Gmail works. Oh, wow. Like you want to learn it. The design documents are there. You can figure out these patterns. And I took a lot of knowledge with me. I really made my time there worth it. Uh, and then I found Ethereum 
and I got obsessed with that. I tried to convince them to do it, but uh, for one reason or another, they you know they weren't moving along with that. So um, ended up leaving in the end to pursue crypt, uh, crypto stuff full time with Raul. Oh, and, and, and you know, like I think one thing that's maybe notable there is that you know Google has this, I guess, or I, or I should say, a really alphabet as this like big kind of corporate company. Um, kind of seems like the opposite place someone that's currently crypto aligned would be working at. Uh, did you see like any correlation kind of working at Google and now being in crypto that maybe like, I don't know, maybe that, that I'm missing? Yeah, like, I, you know, I feel like we argue that, you know, centralization is bad and decentralization is good. They're like two opposite things. Well, what drew me to Google was the opportunity to make an impact. And Google's scale is undeniably large, right? So if you can even do a little bit at Google, it actually affects a lot of things and a lot of people. Um, in the end, it it just felt like I was doing a little bit. So I, I wasn't quite getting that impact that I had hoped for, where Ethereum was, you know, at the time, this is uh, 2017, towards the end of the year, was really starting to emerge and you know, getting traction and getting attention and saying, okay, this is something big. It's an opportunity to make a really big impact. Uh, so in that they're aligned, a lot of smart people are impact driven. Um, Google and blockchains have different missions. So it sort of makes sense that I, I couldn't get them on board with it or, or uh, nobody really could. It wasn't only me. There were a lot of people internally asking to do it, but um, I mean, they just really serve different purposes. There's a time and place for centralization and a time and place for decentralization when it comes to uh, future finance, internet money, it's definitely a decentralized future. So um, yeah, they're just different is the short answer. Totally. I guess for food delivery, that's also centralized as well. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so how'd you guys meet? Uh, I, I guess the year is 2017, right? Ethereum's kind of just becoming a popular thing. <laughs> The year 2017, it's actually after CryptoKitties uh, uh, was the first application that really, really almost like break the network in terms of uh, in terms of gas price being being unsustainably high. Um, and everyone was talking about we need to scale, we need to do something, you know, it needs to grow. And uh, Vitalik was, you know, doing all these these like super fancy research talks uh, all over the world about, you know, what we could do. And uh, I was online, I was, I was reading about this stuff, and I was wondering who's working on this, right? And I dug deeper, and I, I, could, I could only find a few scattered documents. I realized that nobody was actually making this happen, right? And, you know, I wasn't uh, obviously as knowledgeable in Ethereum at the time, and, uh, but I wanted to do something about it. Uh, so in the hopes of finding folks that, you know, were a lot smarter than I was, I posted on, uh, on this, this obscure research, uh, this obscure, like, uh, like, like, the communication forum it, it's called like it was like the go ethereum projects uh like support channel it was it was this thing called gitter and i posted hey does anyone want to work on this stuff for ethereum and preston was the first to reach out he's like hey i might be interested uh, it was lurking he was just stalking that page waiting for someone to just <laughs> we actually got like 12 people or 13 people that reached out at the same time uh, after well after preston and uh, they were all like hey we're thinking the same thing like let's put something together you know and um it's really crazy that we were all in different parts of the world. Nobody knew each other, but we just, you know, started working. I flew out to meet Preston in New York City uh, basically the next week uh, just to, to get to know him better and figure out, okay, how can we actually get a team off the ground? 
Um, and, you know, from there, I guess uh, the rest is history. We managed to, uh, you know, get a lot of support from the Ethereum Foundation, from different organizations, and uh, we got enough funding to start at least incentivizing people to, to do this part time. That's amazing. And, you know, you know, Raul, you mentioned earlier that you've, you've had kind of um, experience, like, you know, like experiences, I guess, kind of running a startup and, and doing stuff like that. But, but Preston, I, I love to hear maybe from your end, like, what was it like? Uh, I guess I should say, what helped you in your past work experiences that helped you kind of both start and run Prismatic Labs? Yeah, we, you know, we learned a lot through that. Um, but what, you know, really helped me was uh, a lot of the things I had, a lot of the mistakes I had already uh, done, right? I, one of the most important things I think we took with us was the need for thinking through solutions before implementing them. Like Ethereum's not a hackathon. If if we're going if we're going there and we're saying we're going to scale this thing, we can't just like go hack it together. It has to be real methodical, documented. These kind of things. Um, some of these like you know best practices from software engineering. Um, like we, uh, I think it was like right after I met Raul and we started doing this thing, I said, "Hey, read this book. It's called The Clean Code by uh, Robert Martin." and in there we're just you know really trying to identify like what is great software to start there and then how do we apply the amazing research that the true gigabit brains are putting together raul and i are i think relatively smart but there are people far beyond smarter than us that are have you know designed these systems and we're really just in here saying wow great idea let's i will build it now <laughs> um but we needed to make sure that it would be done well because it would it would be uh, almost immortal, you know, standing the test of the time, you still have code uh, from Ethereum Genesis that runs, you know, you have to validate all these or process all these blocks since forever. So it had to be well written and well done and stand the test of time. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's really interesting to see how, you know, the batches of people that worked on Ethereum core dev over the years, you know, I think we, you know, we definitely weren't some of the earliest people, but we were there at a very interesting time. Uh, when Ethereum first started, you know, the folks that were involved were really, you know, very, uh, you know, very interesting. They were the kinds of folks that, you know, don't trust anything that isn't open source built, you know, any any even hardware that they build themselves. They put together everything that they, they create, that they use, um, you know, super hardcore about uh, about just building this stuff and, you know, very ideologically driven. Um, a lot of folks were, you know, not particularly coming from a software engineering background, but just really fascinated by crypto. And the next batches that came on board uh, started caring a lot more about how do we actually, you know, scale the software practices here, like make them a lot better. Um, you know, and Preston's like knowledge from Google, like brought in a lot of ideas on how to actually, you know, make this a professional project and make it a lot, a lot, you know, a lot more robust. Like we had a chance to try new things and, and do things well, um, you know, working on, on Ethereum proof of stake. And I think that really paid off. I think the folks that are involved now, it's even a bigger group. It's even more globally decentralized, uh, which is amazing. You know, I think and people's opinions are highly, highly valued in this space, which is really cool. Totally. I, I think that's also like even myself, like what, what brought me to this space and what keeps me here is it's just like like the, uh, the amount of opportunity that one has to make a difference. It's really it's a lot bigger in this space than it is anywhere else is that, you know, that I've seen. But you know, I, I think the uh, the um, 
the other thing then is, you know, obviously you guys, you know, you started prismatic labs, uh, you started contributing to Ethereum, uh, and you know, there, there's, there's definitely like a, like a huge timeline there, although it was just like 2017, 2018, roughly you guys, uh, formed prismatic labs. Um, it's been roughly like almost, geez, like five, six years. It's insane. <laughs> Number one, it's insane. But, uh, the first big update that you guys shipped, I guess, was, uh, the beacon chain. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about that kind of leading up to shipping it and maybe what it felt like actually, uh, you know, deploying it? Okay. I will start, um, beacon chain, right? So we, uh, started working on this at, at the beginning of 2018, right? That so we met in 2017 and said, oh, it's, you're cool. Everything's cool. Let's do this, uh, make Ethereum great again. Um, but, um. <laughs> It was a really long road to get to the beacon chain. Actually, we had uh, to, to iterate through research and arguably we were a little bit too early, uh, too eager. We saw, saw oh, there's some ideas like kind of old research that's out there. Let's just start building it. We start building it. We start thinking about it and we start realizing this is not going to work. We got to start over. Uh, I think we did that two or three times. Um, just complete rewrite of of everything. Um, wow. Originally, we wanted to just sprinkle proof of stake into Geth, right? So into the Go Ethereum client, which is the most popular one. Um, started realizing that was getting difficult to maintain. The Go Ethereum project moves pretty quickly, and we were also moving pretty quickly. So we're having a lot of conflicting information, um, conflicting code. So we started our own thing called Prism and say this will you know, we still don't know how it works, but it's starting to look like it's going to run alongside Go Ethereum or somehow uh, be its own thing. Um, then we get to a point where things sort of start to work, right? We start running um, pseudo test nets where we've got validators validating, producing blocks, making attestations. We don't quite have some key components like... Uh, Signature verification that didn't come till later, <laughs> uh, which is very important, right? We, that's a, the basis around all this. The cryptography was missing. Uh, so it wasn't quite a blockchain, but it was something. And um, I don't know, we kept iterating from there, multiple test nets. And, you know, I actually leading up to the, the launch day for the Beacon Chain is really exciting. And I think Raul is the best one to to tell that part of the story. <laughs> oh man, I, I mean, the launch of the beacon chain was the start of a really multi-year roadmap for like how Ethereum will fully transition to proof of stake. And it's basically, it was very, very crazy because once that launched, it's basically a point of no return. So the way it worked is uh, there was this smart contract on Ethereum that had a certain amount of ETH uh, that you can deposit. And uh, after a certain threshold, uh, basically this proof of stake chain called the beacon chain would start. And this thing was going to be eventually the foundation for Ethereum itself. Like it's basically the new engine for how Ethereum runs. Um, and, you know, it was like it was supposed to launch like December 1st, 2020. We were pretty far from the threshold. Uh, you know, Bitcoiners were uh, calling us out every day on Twitter that this thing <laughs> is never going to happen. Um, and within the span of like like 24 hours, right, it filled up like, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, of people deposited ETH to become validators, right? The threshold was like 16,000 something validators. Um, and it's quite a lot of ETH, right, even even today. Um, 
So, so it was, it was really crazy because at that point, you know, we, we know we still had bugs in our software. We know it wasn't perfect, but like it or not, December 1st at 6 a.m. Eastern, the thing is going to launch, you know? Um, and the problem is we can't just like, you know, it, it's, we, it's decentralized, right? You don't really control, uh, the software. So, um, you know, you, we can push updates to the software, but you have to tell people like, hey, download our, our fix. Like if there's a bug, you have to like shout everywhere and be like, hey, please download our software um, because, you know, we don't we don't have a master node, contrary to popular belief. Um, <laughs> so it was pretty crazy. The day leading up, you know, we were figuring out last minute bugs, like talking to people. Everyone's nervous. Um, and, you know, and when it happened, it was amazing. It's like basically a machine that's moving on its own. Um, it's flying on its own. It's producing blocks that are not ours for the first time, which is pretty crazy. Um, so really it was, it, it was in retrospect, the hardest thing we've ever done because it was basically the genesis of everything. I'm sure even like psychologically, right. That's just, it's insane. Like this thing that you guys have created, like you said, like for the first time is you're not running on your own. It's like, it's taking users funds. It's like, you know, it's, 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 it has all this value now, pretty much almost out of thin air seemingly. Yeah. It's real people's money at that point. That's basically being one way locked up and, and basically burnt uh, in a sense until we ship the next updates. So people are placing a ton of expectation on Ethereum itself that will Ethereum deliver. And, and, you know, of course nobody makes any promises. You know, everyone is aware of the risks, um, and, and, you know, the people that supported us, that supported the project or, you know, aren't, are, you know, that were there early on, uh, really made this happen, right? Like you need people to really believe in this thing to take off. Right. Totally. Which, which is funny. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, while this space is of course, very, very heavily researched and kind of tech oriented, it's also very like, kind of like a uh, philosophical in a way, like if people didn't truly believe this technology would, you know, would really succeed or. I guess maybe even believe that the, that there was a need for the technology, then, you know, frankly, no one would be would be throwing their ETH and or in this case money uh, at it, frankly, right, to get it to run, which is insane. Again, this is like so it's 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 insane how 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 this space can mix like su like such like kind of psychological like kind of uh, I guess thinking, and uh, and such like really really hardcore technical and cryptography kind of stuff, um, truly insane. But so in, in between that though. Um, in between that and kind of shipping the rest of, you know, what you said was kind of the beginning of like this kind of multi-year Ethereum roadmap, um, you guys were considering uh, joining uh, another team. Uh, another team as in like joining like a layer two team, I think is the understanding. Um, I'd love to hear about kind of your process behind that, uh, what you were thinking, you know, um, you know, during that time, I guess, and why it was a necessity in your mind. Yeah, so I was reaching for the uh, the mouse there. Um, yeah, so you know, in the last few years since the Beacon Chain, we've done some pretty cool stuff, right? We've um, successfully ran the Beacon Chain without um, I don't know any catastrophic failures for several years. We shipped the merge, which was incredible, right? The switch, the full switch to proof of stake, right? When Beacon Chain launched, it was its own little thing. I guess you could call it a side chain. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't quite integrated into Ethereum yet. Mm. And so we launched the, the merge and that was really, you know, turning point of like, well, okay, now we've launched proof of stake. That's sort of what we've been working on since, since we started. But what we started 
doing was working on scalability. We said, okay, well, CryptoKitties is uh, taking over everything and there's not enough room for anything else. So we need to fix this right away. Uh, 14 transactions per second is not enough for uh, global money. So let's do better. Um, so we wanted to get back to the roots. We wanted to get back to the original idea. So why, why, why are we here? Why are we working on Ethereum? Uh, it's interesting and, and needs to go fast. Well, the roadmap is looking more and more like uh, a roll-up centric roadmap, right? Or a lot of the scaling is going to be focused on layer twos and other ideas. And um, naturally we thought, okay, well, you know, we're living off of grants, right? We're living off of donations. And um, it's always in the back of our mind that those are not a guarantee. They could go away, right? We have, we have no revenue. We have no, no, profits or anything. We're not making money off this is free public goods, open source software, true to, you know, Ethereum we want to just put it out there and make it, uh, make it so. Um, so we're thinking like, okay, well, at some point we're going to have to make, make some money. So we're thinking, all right, well, I could do these other business ventures, you know, running some managed service or something, or we could launch a layer two. Well, layer two is already around the time getting a bit, um, saturated there are already two three four great ones out there so we thought oh instead of trying and competing for market share which we're already way behind on let's just join you know a team and, and work together to build there was a common goal common mission let's go build something great so um you know we started talking to everybody and um you know it, it wasn't really an easy decision uh because there are a lot of great people out there, but ultimately we've uh, gone with, you know, joining off-chain labs and working with Arbitrum. And it, that's just been absolutely fantastic. Um, looking back now in hindsight, this is definitely the right choice. And we're really, I'm, I'm really, really happy with that. I'm sure Rel has a lot to say as well. And I'll pass it to him. Yeah, like Preston said, you know, for a long time, we were just thinking like, you know, what's the future of this stuff? And and all roads really led to L2. And I think even like L1 core devs, like Ethereum core devs, even Vitalik, you know, would constantly believe that the future of Ethereum, you know, are rollups. Um, and, and that's why a lot of the even recent innovations are focused on making rollups cheaper and better, right? Like, one of the big things that we're focused on shipping is uh, this this thing called EIP four eight four four, which is a change to Ethereum that actually makes uh, the cost for you know for rollups just a lot cheaper, like drastically cheaper, uh, and this translates directly into cost for users themselves. So you know if it's already cheap, uh, you know with Nitro, like imagine after Nitro and what's coming next. Um, so you know we we're just thinking about you know about the future, and you know we think a lot of the future lies also in in execution environments. So something that we're particularly passionate about is uh, is what's happening with Arbitrum Stylus. So uh, you know later this year, uh, people will be able to write contracts in programming languages of their choice. So you can actually deploy Rust code or C or other crazy things to to basically Arbitrum, which is secured by Ethereum. And that's, that's, I think, a really stepwise, like, you know, zero to one improvement in what people were, will build, you know. Uh, one of the things that inspired, you know, me personally about Ethereum back in the day is they had the slogan, well, they meaning, I guess, the Ethereum community uh, that was called, uh, that, that said, we have no features. Like the idea is that, you know, Ethereum is whatever, whatever you build on it, right? We're not telling you what you should use it for. It's a general compute platform. 
And I think that's what's happening with L2s and with the innovation in Arbitrum. So it was super natural for us, you know, when we when we met the Offchain Labs team, you know, we spoke to Ed at length uh, many times and uh, it just felt like the right place to be. You know, we wanted to be part of that group. We wanted to be part of the team. And now we are. And yeah, it's been uh, it's been amazing. Yeah, no, no, that's a uh, and, you know, I, I think um, to your point, it's like kind of. Kind of displaying that the uh, the platform that you're building on in this case, you know, it was Ethereum being this general compute platform. It's very powerful, actually. In a way, it's sometimes less is more, and I think that's what what's made Ethereum such an amazing ground to build on, especially of course layer twos on. Um, but then you know, you know, you're kind of you're kind of now able to have that same type of platform, as you mentioned, like on Arbitrum, and hopefully soon with uh, you know, with Stylus, kind of bring, being able to kind of literally kind of bring over like an entire new community into the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, of course, via layer two, uh, which is insane. Um, like the, the amount of stuff that's going to come out of that. Um, so yeah, I think what's, what's the, the even more, the more exciting thing about Stylus, to me at least as a non-developer, is not so much that, you know, C, C++, Rust, all these different languages will be available. It's more so kind of being able to see which dApps I'll be able to use that, you know, are leveraging that type of a uh, language on Arbitrum. So yeah, I'm really, really excited for that too, from a degenerate perspective, I mean. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I think the, um, you know, you know, you, you guys kind of obviously this, this was last year, I, sh I should say, you know, timeline wise, this was last year back in October, it was announced um, that, you know, uh, Prism or Prismatic Labs that have had officially kind of, uh, you know, joined uh, off-chain labs. Um, and the most recent update, or the most recent, I should say, uh, yeah, but we'll call it upgrade, update, whatever you want to call it, uh, thing that was shipped on Ethereum was uh, Shanghai. Uh, and that pretty much completed the Ethereum roadmap uh, in the short term, uh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the, the full circle of when people first, uh, you know, deposited ETH into proof of stake Ethereum, and now they can actually withdraw their ETH. And, and, you know, and it's, it's an amazing event because um, all of a sudden, you know, like it's the you know the, the the huge risk that people were taking and believing in in this project is now there. It works. It's available, and uh, and you know anyone can come in in a permissionless way and secure the network by staking their ETH. You know, um, which is amazing. You know, there's no there's no control over that. It's fully decentralized, permissionless, um, and and it works. So it closed the loop. It it basically bridged Ethereum into the work that we were doing for these past few years, and now our software Prism, you know, still runs, if not the if not the majority of the of the nodes on the network run Prism, uh, a big chunk of them still run Prism. So uh, people are running Ethereum uh, using our software, and it runs Ethereum mainnet, which is amazing. Hundred percent. Like, I think I mentioned this to you guys before, but like. Like whenever I look over at like my validator, I'm just like so proud of it. It's like it's like I have a child, but I don't have to do anything to take care of it. I mean, obviously, I have to make sure it's connected to the Wi-Fi, but that's it. <laughs> you know, the, contributing to the network is as easy as plugging something in and kind of like running your own node, which uh, which is insane. I have a validator, of course, in this case, but yeah, it's just insane to think about that. That like, uh, you know, one person that can you know can literally take like a relatively small computer, uh, you know, physically speaking, um, and contribute to this enormous network. Uh, that we all love and care about. Uh, that that to me is true true power. Uh, at the end of the day, you know. So you know, you guys of course joining uh, Optane Labs uh, shipping Shanghai. Uh, you know, 
I think one thing people would probably ask is like, okay, like, are you guys only focusing on layer two Arbitrum stuff now? Um, are you still doing Ethereum related stuff? Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of, you know, from your end, like what the case currently is and maybe what you're gonna, you know, looking forward to from both ends, I guess. Also, aside from, of course, we're we're we're, we're you know working a lot on uh, on very exciting uh, Arbitrum projects. Uh, but of course, Prism is uh, still has has quite a lot uh, on its roadmap. So, uh, the biggest thing that is coming is this EIP four 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 that will decrease costs on Arbitrum a lot. So, there's a lot of overlap, and the overlap will only grow even more as time goes on between L two work, uh, you know, on Arbitrum and Ethereum work on the base layer. I think it's amazing that. You know, we're under the same roof uh, and basically the same, you know, same digital roof as uh, as the folks that made Arbitrum like happen. Um, and, and you know, and we have some of the folks that made uh, Ethereum Proof of Stake happen. And we talk, all, you know, all the time, uh, you know, all day about what's going on, about, you know, how we can uh, use some of the tech from, you know, Arbitrum possibly on Ethereum or vice versa. And, you know, the gap is closing there because uh, because Ethereum is focused on enabling rollups. That's the goal. Uh, it's basically the, you know, it's it's the censorship resistant layer for rollup security. So, you know, a lot of conversations have a ton of overlap, uh, a lot of things that, you know, we benefit from each other. So it's very natural. So, so if I were to list, let's say like a couple of things, let's just say sharding, account abstraction, you mentioned EIP 4844. I'm going to mention EIP 6969, which now I know is an actual thing. Um, like out of all those four, or maybe even ones that I'm not mentioning, uh, like w what are you like the most excited about seeing? Um, even if you're not necessarily directly working on, um, I'd love to hear about like, you know, what you guys are excited to see be shipped. I'll ask you to go, Preston, since yeah. Carl just went. <laughs> yeah, there's, there, you know, there's so much on the horizon there. I, I and, and I tend to think about, you know, I'm most excited about what we're working on right now, which is the data availability layers and, you know, really helping L2 become cheaper, more sustainable with the, you know, proto-dank sharding and those kind of ideas. Um, you know, there's also a lot of really cool stuff happening, account abstraction, these are the things, but, you know, that's going to really lower fees a lot and really enable uh, scaling in the short term. So I'm, I'm very excited to see that coming along and it's getting so close, you know, it's it's right there, it's tangible, it's uh, it's coming along real, really nicely. So that's what I'm like, most excited about at the moment. Emerald, well, I guess for you, it'd be 4844. Or... <laughs> that's one of them. But I think what I'm most excited about really is uh, the, you know, the work that's happening to solve a lot of the MEV problems on Ethereum. So uh, for folks that might not be as familiar and maybe have heard the term, um, you know, there, there's a lot of activity that happens on Ethereum that, um, you know, that, you know, such as arbitrage uh, that can actually uh, hurt users, right? So there's like, you know, there's front running, there's back running, there's a lot of things that can happen in the Ethereum dark forest, right? It's a public open network. Um, and, you know, there, there have been many solutions that try to try to, you know, try to push away the problem of, say, arbitrage, driving up gas fees away from users into a different layer. Um, and this has become its own major environment where, you know, there's a lot of money that's been flowing in there, a lot of innovation, a lot of ideas. Um, but a lot of concern over centralization and also uh, censorship resistance. Uh, so as we saw with the tornado cash issue, um, you know, people running this kind of MEV related software, a, a lot of that MEV related software is censoring uh, tornado cash transactions and other sanctioned transactions. Um, 
And if we see that, if we see the natural end game as, you know, centralizing basically block production, um, we're no better off than, you know, than, than the most centralized chains eventually. Um, so there's a lot of ideas flowing around that realm. Um, even, you know, even in L2, like, you know, how should MEV work in L2? And that's still a work in progress. Um, but, you know, I think Ethereum wants to really consider the MEV problem at the protocol layer. And there's a lot of research ongoing to fix that. Um, something that, you know, and you spoke about how amazing it is to be able to run a validator in your living room. It is, it's incredible that basically a single person can be the next one to produce the next block on Ethereum, right? It's like this global decentralized database and you're the next one that's building on top of it. And, you know, and like the little guys have power compared to these big institutions that run, you know, millions of nodes and whatnot. And out of all the blockchains that are out there, I'd wager that Ethereum is really the, you know, the one that has the biggest uh, hobbyist community that runs the network itself because it's possible. In other chains, that isn't even a possibility because of how large they are or the compute requirements. So I'm passionate about solving this MEV problem in a way that, you know, continues giving power to the little guy, um, continues preserving, you know, censorship resistance um, and doesn't get us to a point where, you know, we're worse off than before. I'm not sure what your what your stances are on um, running MEV boost, but like I've been running that on my validator, and uh, I think last month, like uh, my validator proposed a block for the first time, and like you know, like since I saw it, I'm like, okay, like I, I got to do some digging, you know, I got to see like like where this reward came from, because th- it was relatively high. I think it was like 0.2 something ETH. Um, <laughs> I look into it. It turns out like that Jared from Subway character had like front ran like two or three like meme coin transactions on Uniswap or something. I'm like, wow, that's I don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> I, on one hand, I feel a little bad for being for like kind of kind of you know, uh, I guess profiting from someone being front ran on a meme coin. But on the other hand, you know, it's a little, it's a little extra ETH, so it's a it's, it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that any 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 system like adversarial system like Ethereum benefits from you know having you know economically rational actors and actors that try to maximize their gain. You know, I think that we can't expect everything to be just altruistic. Like uh, Ethereum should function under people trying to maximize their gain, uh, and that's totally reasonable. It's a it's, it's a totally reasonable thing to do. Instead, we need to define this. We need to better. You know, we need to improve the system itself such that it doesn't have, you know, very bad externalities on users, such as like censorship, right? Like, can we provide people the way to maximize their gains from things like these, from things like this, um, without seriously damaging, you know, the decentralization of Ethereum? Yeah, when it, when it comes to MEV Boost and my personal validator, you know, I, I care about uh, censorship, right? I don't care so much about... Uh, user value extraction because it's going to happen, you know, one way or another. And in the current state of the thing of Ethereum, it's going to happen. So what I do is I set the minimum bid threshold pretty high. So well, if you need to bribe everyone in Ethereum, and it's my turn to be bribed, you're going to have to pay a lot of money. You're going to pay one ETH um, to me. So that's my minimum bid. And you know, to my surprise, I got a MEV boost block for seven ETH a couple weeks ago. Um, what? Yeah, I didn't really dig into it, but I was like, wow, okay. I mean, um, if everybody did something like that, like they set a minimum bid to a certain level, then this, you know, produce spending money to uh, censor certain transactions or 
or however you want to attack the network by having access to validators will cost some amount. So I figured, well, if I'm going to be, I guess, part of this problem, then I'm going to be one of the squeaky wheels that you have to grease a little extra. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so most of the blocks I get are not MEV boost because of my minimum bid threshold was so high. Uh, but there's occasionally I get that one that's, you know, exceeds the threshold. So there's an idea for you. Yeah. I'm going to need to inquire uh, after this, after this uh, <laughs> podcast about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> all right. So two, two more cues to end off on the, uh, on the Ethereum stuff, uh, relatively, you know, of course, controversial ones, um, at this point in Ethereum's, uh, we'll call it like, you know, uh, life, uh, can it succeed without uh, Vitalik? And I guess, you know, we're talking about blockchain, the community as a whole, its development, et cetera. Can it succeed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, would it be worse off? by a significant margin absolutely i think that vitalik's role today is um is really in that you know thirty thousand foot like you know view um you know he comes in and he shares you know where he thinks the end game of this stuff should go but you know he's not dictating it by any means right uh like he comes in and he talks about the big debate about like should you know is it fine if block production is centralized but validation is decentralized you know is that is, you know, what about L2s, L2 bridging, like that kind of stuff. He comes out with these kind of, these massive blog posts that are incredible and, and you know, you learn a lot from, but he's far less involved in the day-to-day. -day. And I think it's great for his health. I think it's great for everyone. And, and he's been trying to decouple himself for many years. If you asked me this question back when the Beacon Chain launched in 2020, I would say absolutely not. I think we'd be screwed if Vitalik left. <laughs> um, he was so instrumental in, in things like, you know, how should sharding or the merge or all these things work. And now the ideas are there. I think there's very capable people. Um, but I, I think we, you know, we really look up to him as, as kind of that guiding beacon, uh, at least to, to understand, you know, how to reason about the future. Um, he's not as involved anymore, I think, in, in like actually building this stuff. Gotcha. Yep. Any thoughts there? Presley? Yeah, 100% agree, right? Like, if it, Vitalik used to be this, like, um, almost like a central point of failure, people thinking, oh, if Vitalik wants to quit or, or anything like that, then Ethereum's in big trouble. Well, nowadays, I mean, that's not so true, like we're always saying. Vitalik's still coming through with excellent ideas and research, but it's kind of reached a bit of autonomy where the original people who were there uh when ethereum was being conceived uh are no longer involved in that capacity there's new people and, the, and there's far more of them um so i mean like it's it's kind of a uh, self-sustaining self-fulfilling uh, uh uh project so it, yeah it it would slow down for sure velocity but uh it, it would in the end still succeed 100 percent second question there, uh, I guess, you know, a little bit playing off of that one. Uh, would we consider Ethereum to be the most decentralized blockchain? And you can, you can attack this from any perspective, by the way. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, if it, it, it's, you have to be really, 
really really strict about definitions here so like are we defining it and like what what matters when it comes to decentralization is it like the number of nodes uh, that's like that's what critics would say you know if i say yes to your question right. is it number of nodes um it's it's not number of validators because on ethereum one person can be running ten thousand validators right or, or a million a uh, hundred thousand validators whatever um i think number of nodes and and I think it's like the compute requirements, the ability, like we mentioned, that you can run a node in your in your living room. You can still validate the blockchain, uh, you know. And I think you know a lot of Bitcoiners would 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 agree with that. Um, I would say that yes. I think by that metric, it is. Uh, it has the biggest, I think, hobbyist community that runs nodes. Uh, people want to run nodes for many purposes. Uh, you don't even need to run a validator to run a node. Right? You can just run the blockchain, and you're contributing to Ethereum's decentralization. Um, and I think it's been designed also in a way such that even if like a big chunk of validators, they disappear off the face of the earth, the blockchain will not stop. It's not going to halt or disappear. A lot of other chains, they make the trade off where, um, you know, they, they design it such that if a certain amount of validators go offline, the chain stops. Right. Like we've seen that with, uh, you know, like with Solana, uh, chains like Cosmos can 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 halt, for example, if a scenario like that occurs on Ethereum, even if a big amount of nodes are wiped off the face of the earth and validators are the chain will always continue um so yeah i'd say by by a lot of metrics i think yes it, it meets that requirement you just pissed off every solana listener in the room by the way <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead preston uh yeah i like solana so i'm mad no, i was kidding but um <laughs> no really like ethereum is is very decentralized right and what that means to me is a lot of what Raul is saying it's about accessibility for the common user, right? If you think about these really big projects like Bitcoin, if you want to be the one, the one to produce the next block, you have substantial investment required, right? You need uh, a significant uh, number of computing power, or you need to be very, very lucky, uh, which is not, not going to work out. Um, and being able to run it on a Consumer grade hardware is just, I mean, that's just the dream right there. Um, and Ethereum being as big as it is, and with these resiliency and liveness priorities that it's it's taken, I, I truly do think that it is the most decentralized and would continue to be so for the foreseeable future. Uh, haven't seen anything quite like it yet. Um, a lot of people make different trade offs, but Ethereum, like, you know, is true to its mission to try to be. Uh, a world computer or internet um, money settlement layer, uh, and it's very decentralized. It, yeah, hundred percent. Awesome. Yeah, I, I was actually a little worried, like for a second, that like one of you guys might say like Cardano or Ripple or something like that. <laughs> Could be completely off off script for me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so okay, I think with that, we can kind of uh, do uh, you know like a little. Um, Go, go into a little bit of like maybe like, like a little hobby or a skill set that you guys have that's like little known uh, before we end off. Um, maybe we'll touch on we'll touch on, on yours first, Preston. Uh, you mentioned earlier, I've seen the podcast uh, a little bit about this, but planes. Yeah. Can, can, can we can we talk a little bit about that? You're, you're, you're a pilot or something? That's right. Is that true? I am a licensed pilot. Um, yeah, my on my dad's side of the family, there's a lot of aviation there in our blood, so he really inspired me to go do that. And uh, for, for a long time, I thought I would 
enjoy being an airline pilot. Mm-hmm. I still might. I never really got there, right? But I I uh, have my own small plane, a little four seater plane. Uh, it's not very fast. We hardly fit in it, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, nice. The 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 smiles per mile are just off the charts. So it's a, it's a really great hobby. Uh, something that uh, I really enjoy and something that I think is uh, pretty rare. Like most people can't do it, and that it just gives me a lot of pride to to you know to have one skill that that not a lot of people can do and just it can take you places you've never been before so it's really enjoyable hobby and i encourage anyone uh with the ability to to try it out how does that work are you just able to like kind of jump in your plane just land in any like air air airfield that you see like any (laughs) like any landing strip that you can spot uh (laughs) <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, there are some, you know, private fields out there, but uh, in the U.S. there are hundreds, thousands of um, public airports. I mean, they're they're like a bus, they're like streets. You know, if it's a public uh, airport, you can land there. You don't need uh, permission. You just start really start flying that way, and then you call if if it's a towered airport where they have a controller. You say, "Hey, I'm ten miles out. Let me, I'm I'm coming in to land." And they say, "All right." Get, get in line and then i'll let you in i mean i i could even land somewhere like laguardia or something big but you know they'll charge you a fee perhaps but you'd be allowed to do it it's not it's it's public it's not private so you can go anywhere you want to yeah that's like true freedom that's like true freedom yeah. you know it's, it's got to be like therapeutic to a certain extent to be able to do that yes it's it's very fun especially when you get out in the middle of nowhere and you're just sort of like counting chicken coops and just sort of like you have a lot of time to meditate <laughs> Uh, you really think that? So, wow, this is a privilege and something unique, and and I definitely uh, take time to appreciate it. That's dope, yeah. man. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, Raul, for you, uh, I, I'd love to know a little bit about your uh, your ability to speak Cantonese and like why you know that. Uh, and are, are you fluent, by the way? Yeah, at this point, I I I understand. You know. I, perfectly comfortable and almost pretty much everything except for like hardcore technical topics or medical topics or whatever but uh <laughs> yeah um you know i i love learning languages uh for some reason i think it's a lot of fun um i think i think especially like you know there's with the internet you know the internet so much of it being english uh we don't realize just how much of the internet is you know in other languages and how much is, is out there right and you know my, my wife is from china basically right right outside hong kong so uh, strong Cantonese culture and influence there, and uh, it's a it's a lesser known, you know, it's a lesser spoken language. Uh, the Mandarin is really the most popular one in China, obviously the volume of people, uh, but Cantonese is such a rich culture and history, um, and and I think it, it's it's fascinating, really. You get to learn a lot about you know the history. You learn a lot about like how people think differently. It opens up your brain in so many ways because it's so radically different than anything else, you know. Um, and, you know, also spent a lot of time learning Japanese. It's been quite a few years at this point. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, it's, uh, it's awesome. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn there. Um, and the best part is really when you can fully understand what people are saying and when you didn't understand that before. Say the first time I went to China, for example, I was completely lost at the dinner tables. You know, people were speaking. I was just on my phone. I was just like, you know, I can't, I don't even know what people are saying. And we right. just came back from a trip there uh, to see family. And, and it's amazing being able to like have in-depth conversations with anyone, any family member, uh, with grandparents, with uncles, with cousins, and just fit in. And, and wow, like, you know, it, it opens up a whole world of people 
that you didn't know. So I think that's exciting to me. Um, there's also a big Ethereum community, uh, you know, that speaks Chinese, obviously. And, uh, you know, they've invited us sometimes to like, you know, give talks or talk about Prism stuff or proof of stake. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. I think what's got to be the most satisfying thing is when like, like you're over there, like, you know, somewhere in China and like, you know, you haven't said a, you haven't said a word yet. And like, as soon as you start speaking Cantonese, they cut they, like, I'm sure you get looks like where it's like, holy, like, this guy speaks Cantonese. Is he, is, he, is he playing with me right now? You know, kind of thing. Like, how does this guy know Cantonese? No, the funny, <laughs> it's not an easy language to learn, I, I imagine. The funniest thing is all the things people say behind your back in public places, even like in elevators oh or behind your, you know, behind your back or in front of you and all kinds of things. It's hilarious. Uh, you know, thankfully, nothing, nothing mean or anything, but it's been really funny. You know, like, oh, man, his, his nose is so long. Like, where is he from? Like, you know, <laughs> like, damn, he's so tall. Like, oh, man, his, his, his eyes are so weird. Like, why is his ear like that? You know, like, <laughs> like right here, you know, like, um, but no, it's, uh, yeah, people are really, they're really grateful, uh, that you take the time to learn their language. Um, it's unfortunately like, you know, the language is losing its influence, right? It's not taught in schools anymore. So a lot of kids can't speak it anymore. Um, and, you know, just preserving that culture, I guess, is, uh, is important. Totally. I, I think um, I, I learned a little bit of um, Mandarin in, in college, but I think my understanding was that like they kind of only teach they only teach Mandarin and it's like it's like pinyin they teach. It's like a, kind of like a, know, it's easier to read, I guess, versus just the characters. Right. Yeah. There's like 50,000 or more Chinese characters and, you know, all of them represent different concepts and words and, wow. and ideas. And it's a lot of rote memorization, um, but there's a lot of patterns in there, too, which is really cool. Uh, and, you know, oh funny God. enough, they don't have as many loan words. So like, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, they have a unique words for things um, like in other languages. We like to say English words, right? Like in Spanish, we say a lot of English words. We call it Spanglish. Uh, but in Chinese, they don't. So they come up with new things and they have to be creative. Right. Like, you know, how do you say optimistic roll ups? Right. And, and I think the there's the best translation is something like happy spring roll. Um, <laughs> but it's it's amazing. I would, I would love to know how they say ZK rollups. Uh, <laughs> no knowledge spring rolls. <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh, man. Well, listen, guys, I appreciate you for coming on today uh, and telling us your stories. Uh, and yeah, with that with that being said, I think, I think we'll end off here. Thank you guys again. And we look forward to seeing what you uh, continue to contribute and, and build in this space. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you. Thank you for watching this week's episode of Beneath the Layers. If you're interested in listening to more, make sure to check us out on YouTube or on any of the other major podcasting platforms. Also, we're hiring. So if you're interested in working on cutting edge tech, scaling Ethereum, etc., make sure to apply at jobs.lever.co forward slash labs. Additionally, a disclaimer, nothing in this podcast should be taken or understood as financial advice of any kind uh, and all opinions expressed by the host, myself, or the guests are solely their opinions, my opinions, and do not reflect the opinions of Offchain Labs as a company. All that being said, thank you for watching. See you guys in the next one.